copy of God's, God's Word to Luke 15. Luke 15. A few years ago, as an anniversary gift, I got the photo that Megan and I had taken when we were married enlarged. And I took a frame that her dad had made when she was a kid, and I refinished the frame, and I took the enlarged photograph and the new frame to a frame shop and had them do a custom matting and put together this, this picture in an enlarged way. It's one of our favorite pictures. Before, we'd always had people notice it, but when we took this picture and we put it in the enlarged frame, it was really striking. Nothing about the image had changed, but its size and the way that it was matted and the fact that the frame was so beautiful gave a different context to the picture, and so it really does draw your notice when you come through our home. In the same way, when we look at passages, passages of Scripture, we will find at times that they become somewhat mundane to us. We become familiar with them, and we at times can lose the quality that is already there. But when we take a step back, when we look at the frame of the image, that the, the story that the Scripture tells, when we look at it with fresh eyes, we grow in appreciation for its preciousness. This morning, I'd like to do that by looking at a passage that we're all familiar with. In fact, it's a passage that's so famous that I would dare say that even people who have never even read the Scripture are familiar with this story of Amazing grace. Turn with me and look at Luke 15 as we read together the story of God's grace and what it means for us. Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Him to listen. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he is found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. 
Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing and summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how can we not be struck by your kindness? Infinite, matchless grace. We recognize this morning and in gathering this size, there are people gathered today who are not aware of you, do not, do not truly know your love and affection. I pray, Father, that the message of your love and grace to sinners would be so clear. I pray that your Spirit would do its work, that you would add to the utterance of my mouth Conviction and clarity that your spirit would do its work in drawing sinners to you, we pray. Amen.
As we read this series of parables, we note how this story starts. There are tax collectors and sinners gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Jesus is telling these parables to a group of scribes and Pharisees and onlookers, those who want to hear the message of Christ and how to come to him. But still, there's a crowd who are scoffing and ridiculing Christ because they, they ask themselves, how is it possible for a man who claims to be holy, who may be the Messiah, how is it possible for this man to receive wretched sinners? Does he not know they are unclean and unworthy? to be in the presence of a holy man. These Pharisees and all selfish, righteous, self-righteous people like them fail to understand the gospel. We reiterate that. This message is not just about Pharisees, but any and every one of us even who walk with a self-righteous heart when we truly fail to understand the gospel, we miss Christ. We close our hearts to the gospel for ourselves and for others. When we see these Pharisees and anyone else who walks in a self-righteous and indifferent attitude, the man we ought to think of is that righteous Pharisee who was in the temple beating, uh, watching the, the tax collector beat his chest. The righteous Pharisee looked at this tax collector and he thanked God that he tithed of all that he had, even of his herbs. But most of all, he thanked God that he was not like that sinner. Christ asked the question, which man went away justified? And the answer is, the man that went away justified was that Pharisee. He went away self-justified. But before God, it was the tax collector who recognized, I'm a sinner that was truly justified. See, the Pharisees were men who believed in the holiness of God. We miss this sometimes. We look at the Scriptures and we think the Pharisees were just evil men, but the reality is is that they believed in the supernatural. They believed in angels. They believed in eternity. They believed in the resurrection. They had right doctrine. But the problem with the Pharisees is they also believed in conditional grace. They believed that they, because they followed the law, they were justified. And because of this, they worshipped a God of their own making, a God of conditional grace. So this is why the Pharisees were scandalized that Jesus would accept sinners. It didn't compute with their doctrine. It didn't follow their theology They failed to recognize this important truth. They also were sinners. They also were in need of grace. And so these parables that Jesus gives gives this group in Luke 15 is revealing to them and to us this key thing. God has an intense affection for the lost. An intense love for the sinner. And this is why Jesus came. These parables 
purpose is to take a mirror and turn it to the face of the self-righteous, indifferent, legalistic heart that cannot see its need of grace. And in beautiful fashion, Christ goes from the least to the greatest. In the succession of parables, He speaks of the one of out of a hundred. And what happens when the one sheep is found? There is a celebration. And we see heaven celebrate. Then there's the one of out of ten, the coin that is lost. And what's the result? There's celebration because that which was lost has been found. And who does Jesus say is celebrating now? It's the angels celebrating. But now it gets very, very specific. The one out of the two. From the least to the greatest. What is the response in this situation, however? There is celebration, but now the mirror has been turned fully to the heart of the legalistic man who does not rejoice with that which was lost being found. And what we see in succeeding fashion is that at first it's heaven that celebrates, and then it gets more specific. It's the angels that celebrate. But now we see in the parable of the prodigal that the source of all all joy at sinners saved is the Father. It is God who directs heaven, that directs angels, and it is Christ speaking to the hearts of these legalistic Pharisees saying, why won't you rejoice with the Father, the one you say you belong to? Such wise, wise teaching that Christ gives. And in the process, Jesus reveals to these Pharisees not only that they have worshipped a conditional God, a God of their own invention, but they have failed to recognize their need, their desperate need to be saved and joined with those sinners that are coming in droves to Christ to be reconciled to God. And so what we see in the parable of this prodigal is a series of shameful responses a scandalous reception or reaction to the gospel and the reality that we have to have the thing we must recognize is that the gospel is for people who recognize their shame but for those who are self-righteous and indifferent it is scandalous the gospel and its free unmerited unconditional offer is scandalous to the heart of those who are self-righteous and indifferent And so in your outline, you'll see that we have three responses. There's the younger son's shameful rebellion, the father's shameful reception, and lastly, the elder son's shameful rejection. So let's look first at the younger son's shameful rebellion. We see that this son goes to his father and he says to his father, give to me the share of my estate that falls to me. You know, what he's essentially saying to his father is that when you die... I have an inheritance coming to me. I can't wait any longer for you to die. So give me what's mine now. We have to marvel at how shocking this would have been for those hearing. Absolutely astonishing. Mouths would have been agape because this sort of action would have been a righteous reason for a man to take his son before the village and the village to stone such a son that had been so 
uncouth toward his father and so rebellious. But what is more shocking is not only the request of the son, but the response of the father. See, when the father gives the son what he asks for, there would have been absolute astonishment. There would have been, it would have been a scandalous thing to consider. We can imagine that those, even the sinners who had been drawn to Christ, would be astonished at the grace or perhaps foolishness of a father that would give a rebellious son everything that he asked for, who was living in such a disdainful way. But that's not the end of the story, is it? It goes onward. And look at verse 13. Not many days later now, the son gathers everything that he's been given. He takes his inheritance. And he goes on a journey to a, listen, distant country. Where is he going? Away from his father. Away from the promised land. And where is there to go other than the promised land? The Gentile nations. And so he leaves everything he has known and he squanders everything he has in loose living. Again, this, I don't think we can fully grasp how scandalous this was. We must remember that the the reason that the people of Israel had been driven out of the land in the first place was because of rebellion, idolatry, a failure to worship the Lord properly. After they came back to the land, there were many who did not return with them because they had mixed their blood and they were unable to return to the land. They had lost their claim to the inheritance. And so a Jew hearing this would have been absolutely shocked. How can a Jew who's got an inheritance, who has a father, a place, a land in the covenant people of God, choose, not be forced, but choose to forsake his father, forsake his land, and forsake his God to go back out into the wilderness, essentially, away from the presence of the Lord. This is a shocking turn of events. He doesn't go there to evangelize like Jonah did when he went out and evangelized in Nineveh. No, he goes and he lives a loose life and loses everything he took with him. To give you a taste of just how offensive this would have been for any self-respecting Jew, every time a man would go to, to journey from Nazareth, Nazareth, from northern Israel, down into Jerusalem, this is a, a, an annual rite of passage, he would take a way that was much longer than it had to be to, in order not to walk through Samaria a land which had been tainted because the people there had compromised and had intermarried with other Gentiles and now tainted the land. And they considered it, any righteous Jew would have considered that land a tainted land. So any Jew that was traveling from Nazareth down to Jerusalem would go all the way around Samaria to bisect it. If he walked through it, however, the first thing he would do would be take his sandals off when he got to the border shake them, and then step on the land of Samaria so that he would not bring the pure soil of Israel into that polluted land. And then once he'd finished his journey through Samaria, he would again take his sandals off and he would clean his feet 
before he walked back on the holy land of Israel so that he would not pollute himself or the land. So for this son to leave his father and to go to this foreign land is shocking to the hearers. And so we now see the son has lost everything he has and he is now left in a shameful condition as a result of his shameless living. We see that once he had spent everything that he had, a severe famine occurred in the country in which he was and he began to be impoverished so that he went and hired himself as one of the citizens of the country. And again, listen to this. Not only is he living in a foreign land, but now he hires himself out and is being hired to feed swine, pigs. And as he looked at the food that he threw to them, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that they were eating. But nobody gave him anything. It's like the knife has been put into the heart and is being turned. This is unbelievable. I can imagine that there had to be absolute astonishment and shocked gasps as the people in the crowd heard that this son not only was in a Gentile land living recklessly, but has also gotten to such a low place that he would consider serving in the area where the pigs were and even long to feed upon what they ate. As we know, pigs, they'll eat anything and everything. What was fed to pet pigs was the lowest quality of food. It was essentially garbage. But see, we understand that. But it's more than that for the Jew. Not only were the Jews not to consume pork, for a Jew to be in the presence of a swine herd was unclean in itself. This man, this son, has become so lowly, such an offense, how could he ever be acceptable? The point is that Christ is putting in through this narrative arc such intensity upon the lowliness and the true nature of what sin does to us externally on the outside. This son is untouchable. He should not be able to be welcomed in by any stretch. All of those listening to this would have seen this exceedingly shameful behavior and this lowly position is something that would have been unworthy of being received once again. But then we notice this change in the sun. Look at verses 17 and 19. And I love this. But when he came to his senses, do you notice that? When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. The son has come to his senses. It's as though he's been walking in darkness and now a light is shining in to this darkness. He's been walking as a foolish one, but now he's beginning to heed wisdom. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, thinking is not a change of heart, but it may be the beginning of it. Conviction is not conversion, but it is one step in the right direction. The ruin 
of many people's souls is simply this. They never think at all. This scoundrel of a son begins to think for the first time. He begins to remember. See, when he was in his father's house, he took it for granted, the mercy and the generosity of his father. But now that he himself is impoverished and starved and hungry, he's remembering. My father, he always took care of the other servants. He always ensured that they were well fed. See, previously this son not only took his father for granted, but he even hated his father. But now he begins to look at his father in a different light. Compared to this current taskmaster, he recognizes that his father is merciful. His father is generous. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know where you are in your walk. But let me give you this. If you are experiencing affliction, if you are feeling as though you're in a low place, this is a great mercy. This is a great mercy. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. This famine came as a great kindness of God so that the son would not continue in the same condition that he was in. What would have been worse for the son was that he was able to continue to live as he was with no consequences till he stood before the throne of God in judgment. It is a mercy that you suffer. It is a mercy not of your doing that you begin to recognize that you need to look up and look to Christ. And so we see that this son's shameful rejection now turns to the, the father's shameful reception. Look at the compassion of this father. In verse 20, he, the, father got, or the son got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. The, the son hasn't even said a word. The idea here is that the father is not only looking to the son, but he's been longing for his return. In verses 24 and 32, we note that the father believed that this son might even be dead. He'd nearly given up all hope. But every day, this is the what the language is, is giving us, that he, this father would go out and look longingly for his son. So when the father saw him, he did something we, we can't anticipate. The people listening to this could not have anticipated it. You see, one of the issues is we live in a culture and a society that is so utterly depraved and sinful that our hearts have become immune in some ways to sin. We hardly bat an eye when we see the scandal of the ravages of sin upon our society. In some ways, we dismiss immorality and maybe quietly condemn it, but we don't really have it affect us in the way it affects God and His heart. The culture that Christ was speaking to when He gave this parable was a shame culture. The right response 
of the Father would not have been to receive a son like this, but to give him the cold shoulder. Not to receive him, but to reject him, perhaps disown him. It would have been the job of those in the village to berate this son, throw stones at this son, to shame the son, and to chase him out of the village because of the shame that he had brought on his family. But do you see what the father does? This is shocking. He takes upon himself shame. Before the son's spoken, the father is filled with compassion and he does something that you wouldn't see an old man do. Even in our society, you don't normally see this. An old man run. And in the culture that this man lived, in order to run, he would have had to take his robe and tuck it around his waist and gird up his loins and run out to his son. And that's exactly what he did. This would have been a shocking thing for the people in the village to see. For those listening to this story, it would have been absolutely astonishing. They wouldn't have been able to understand how this son who should be shamed is instead seeing a father take all the shame upon himself. It doesn't make any sense. But the father despises the shame and runs to his son, embraces him, and kisses him. Now look at the joyous celebration of the father in verses 21 to 24. The son begins to recite the speech that he had already prepared, and he says to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he even has finished, before he could say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but please, please, Father, let me be a servant. The father exceeds anything the son could have even imagined. The father speaks to his slaves and says to them, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead. And he's come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they all began to celebrate. Jesus is showing to this crowd that the source of celebration has always been from the heart of God the Father. It has always been His intention to see sinners reconciled. We see this all the way back in the garden after Adam and Eve rebelled. It was God who spoke to them of redemption and reconciliation. It was God who made a way for sinners to come back to Him thing we must never forget is that salvation is God's idea. Salvation is of the Lord. It is the most true and beautiful statement in all of the scripture. When Jonah was in the belly of the fish, the thing that freed him from that prison was the utterance, salvation is of the Lord. It is what brings the most clear understanding of who God is. He is a saving, redeeming, loving, gracious, sacrificial God. What's amazing is that the nature of the grace this father extends to the son is without condition. He has not even said a word, and the grace is already present. He's begun to look to come to his father, but his father's been looking to him to come all this time. And once the son is in his presence, he need not go on repenting in order to receive mercy. It's already given the father speaks to his slaves and says to them, bring to my son a robe, a sign of honor. Bring to him ring 
a ring, the sign of authority. He's not only a part of the family, he has authority in the family once again. Bring him sandals, the sign of sonship. He is with us. He was dead, but is alive. And now they celebrate. They celebrate. Many of us stop here, don't we? We think that's the, the story. We think that that's the, the climax, but it's not. For many of us, we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We look at the prodigal and we see us. Here's my concern. So easily, our hearts being deceitful, being wicked, us still being in these sinful bodies, we have the ability, the tendency, and the likelihood that we can turn from a prodigal son who rebelled to a prodigal son like this elder brother who thinks that there's some merit in us that earned or kept grace. Let's look at the climax of the narrative arc that Christ gives to us this morning. Let us look now at the elder son's shameful rejection. See, at this moment, Christ has taken the mirror and all along, the Pharisees and the religious hearers are hearing this story and they don't understand it. But now, Jesus unmistakably holds a mirror up to them and shows them the true extent of who they are, where their heart is, and how that does not compute with the gospel of God. Look with me at verses 28 to 30. And note first this son's shameful response. But he became angry, this elder brother, and was not willing to go in. The father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered and said to his father, and you have to hear the scorn in his voice. Our Bibles put an exclamation point after look, but he is in exasperation and anger with his father demanding his father, look, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice the scorn there, this son of yours, not my brother, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. You know what's amazing? Neither of these sons understood their father. Neither one of them knew his love. The first son threw it all away. The second son slaved away. His mentality has been that of a slave. And we can see when he says, I have... Never neglected a command of yours. Jesus is specifically targeting those law keepers, the Pharisees among him, who are confused, who've made the, the confused thought that the law was given to be upheld and perfectly kept. They've not understood that the purpose of the law was to condemn. The law was there to guide. The only man who has ever fully kept the law was Jesus Christ. And the reality is that once we're in Christ, the law is not gone. In fact, it's given to us and we're able to keep it through Christ. 
But may we never get confused in thinking like the Pharisees did, that we keep the law and therefore receive from God mercy. Here's a very grave sin so many of us are given to in this room. We understand that God is elect. We know that God calls those who are his. And we can fall prey to the confusion of thinking, well, God saved me because I was elect. Well, God saved me because of this offer of grace, him looking and seeing my willingness to follow him. That, that's why Christ died for me. That, that's not scriptural. And I don't want to dismiss and say that that's completely uh, wrong. I don't want to get in the, the, the marsh here with you. But what I want you to recognize is this. The offer of salvation, as far as you and I understand, is free to all. It is open to all. It is not for us to look back and say, well, I earned, I merited. Never. Any merit you have is because you're in Christ. Any obedience you have is because you're in Christ. And as soon as you think, I did this or I did that, you're walking in your own strength and you are on your own. That is a dangerous place to be. The father, hearing all that his son has said to him, speaks now to him. He says, Son, you have always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been been found. Between these two brothers stood the father offering free grace to both. Let me say that again. He offered free grace to both without qualification to either one. Now, had the older brother embraced his father, he would have found grace that would make every duty a delight and dissolve the hardness of his servile heart. At this point in the sermon, the batteries in the microphone died, and it was a minute or so before we were able to notice and turn on the ambient microphone. We apologize for the lower audio quality and the brief interruption. You're looking on them and their sin to cause you to think there's no hope. Have you ceased or given up on praying for them and sharing Christ with them? See, the reality is that many of us fall into the same mindset that the Pharisees had. We forget that the gospel is free, unconditional, and unmerited. This is the scandal of the gospel. It is scandalous to the self-righteous hearer. Let me give you another example of this. Another passage of scripture that we're all familiar with. You've probably seen it held up in a little placard at a football game. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I don't think it would be hard for me to look around and, and point to one of you and say, could you tell me John 3.16? And you probably know it very close, word perfect. But do you know that we still miss what this understands so frequently? We, we miss this is a gospel. This is an offer. This is a love without condition. Without merit. Turn with me quickly to Romans 
chapter 5. Paul, he in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, essentially opens this verse and this concept of free, merciful grace just a little bit more. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 10 say, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death, of, through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What do we bring to our salvation? Our sin. While we were still helpless, while we were still dead in our trespasses and sin, while we still abhorred God and hated him, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of Christ. The gospel invitation is unconditional. It is open to all. God demonstrates his love and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We cannot miss this. You see, when I think God loves me, because Christ died for me. Let me repeat this because this is so easy to miss. When I think God loves me because Christ died for me, I'm thinking like a Pharisee. But when I think God's grace is because, or excuse me, when I think God's grace is because of my holiness, I am believing the lie of conditional grace. How should you think then? What do the the scriptures make clear Christ died because God loved you Jesus came to bring you to the Father it's not as though God was the ogre that was angry with you Jesus is making it explicit in this parable the Father sent the Son and the Son willingly gladly, joyfully came in order to make a way to the Father. Do you hear the subtle difference? See, when we believe that Jesus saved us from God, we will think God is a unmerciful, unyielding taskmaster, and we will be given to a wrong understanding of the law. We will not follow God out of joy and the law itself will not be life, but death. We will get caught up in thinking that grace was merited somehow by the way I'm living today. And that's absolutely wrong. We have to stop. Are you living today a life holy enough and worthy enough to be saved? Of course not. Even now, you're still falling short of God's standard. How did you stand then? Let me tell you. In Christ. Did you guys know that the word Christian is a pejorative term that's only used once in the Bible? What is the right term for us then? We're in Christ. 
We're in him. We're in the beloved. Over a hundred times you'll see that in throughout the New Testament. How do we then stand in Christ? How do we stand before the Father in him? How do we go then to the heavenly places in Christ? Who are we married to? Christ. Who are we? We're his church, his bride, his holy ones. We stand together in him. Alone we fall. In him we rise and bring glory to him and to the Father. Just a chapter or two over, Paul speaks to this. This is the heart of the law-abiding person, the one who thinks the law itself is the one that brings justification without understanding. It's simply there to condemn. Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at the law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Why did the people of Israel not come to Christ? Why did they not experience righteousness? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works. And so now they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it's written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Do you see the difference? Brothers and sisters, we look to Christ. We stand in Christ. And as we look to him and as we love him, you know what happens? We love the law. Not only is it a tutor that, teacher, a tutor that brought us to salvation, now it is our, sor- our source of joy. Here's one of the things that we get confused about. We look at the Old Testament, we think, well, they got saved by obeying the law. Wrong. They got saved looking to Christ. And when they looked to the law, they saw their shortcomings, but they knew God had to fulfill it. And so the law was a source of joy for them. That's why the psalmist looked to the joy with joy throughout their discussion and their prayer about the law of God. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves as we close. Have I come to truly know the love of God? Have I experienced the acceptance that is in Christ? Christ welcomes sinners. Self-righteous sinners. And licentious sinners. He welcomes them all, and his welcome is free to all. Hear the word of Christ. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. How providential is it that today we read Psalm 95? I was looking for this passage, and I... I Here we are, we found it. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah. How wonderful. In God's providence, we're reading Psalm 95. Listen. There is no thing, nothing, not one thing you can
can do, ever have done, or ever will do to merit mercy. You can't. You won't. You have it. It is freely bestowed by God. And so, will you heed the words of this poem? One of my favorite songs by Joseph Hart. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Let not conscience let you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is that you feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's glimmering beam. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and mangled by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Not the righteous. Not the righteous. Not the righteous, but sinners Jesus came to call. Agonizing in the garden, lo, your maker prostrate lies on the bloody tree. Behold him, hear him cry before he dies. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Sinner, will this not suffice? Lo, the incarnate God ascending pleads the merit of his blood. Venture to him. Venture freely. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus. None but Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Christ has taken upon himself our shame. Let us not walk in shame, but in joy forevermore. Amen. Father, let us be true of all of us, we pray. Amen.